Welcome, it's great to see you all. Um, hope you're all well and keeping sane after two months of lockdown. I'm pleased to see so many of you are still not Zoomed out and still attending Zoominars and webinars, so it's great to have you here this morning. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Zulon Begum. I'm a partner at CM Murray. I specialise in partnership law. I advise law firms and other professions on partnership issues such as governance, remuneration, partnership agreements and mergers and acquisitions. I'm incredibly privileged to have with me this morning John Machel QC of Cell Court. For any partnership law geeks out there like me, John is the rock star of the partnership world. He is one of the leading partnership in LLP silks and the author of the Bible on LLP law, The Law of Limited Liability Partnerships by Whitaker and Machel. I'm also privileged every day, in fact, to have Sarah Chilton as one of my partners. Sarah is an expert in advising both firms and individual senior equity partners on partnership disputes and investigations, with a particular focus on team moves, covenants, and discrimination and whistleblowing issues. Um, in terms of what we will be covering this morning, there is quite a lot to get through and we'll do our best to cover everything. Firstly, we'll start with a general overview of decision-making powers in, in the context of LLPs and partnerships and the contractual and implied duties when making key decisions and the consequences if you don't get them right. And then we'll also focus on practical issues like decision-making in the era of lockdown and social distancing and how you hold meetings and resolutions. When, when you have to maintain social distance. We'll also be looking at key issues around partner appraisal process and remuneration, how you manage that in lockdown, um, and how you avoid whistleblowing and discrimination claims. We'll also be focusing on how to practically to take steps to ensure that any process and decision-making in relation to partner exits are lawful and enforceable. And lastly, we'll touch on um, material changes and um, key strategic decisions, for example, how to amend your LLP agreement and the issues to bear in mind if you are looking at merging with another firm or even if you are in distress um, and you want to appoint an insolvency practitioner or agree a prepack sale. And as I said, we'll be taking questions throughout, so please do send them to me um, as and when. So without any further ado, I'm going to hand over to John to give us a very brief overview of the key issues to consider in relation to decision making in the context of partnerships and LLPs. Morning, everybody. I uh, hope everybody's well. Uh, for my part, um, I would encourage anyone who's at least fully dressed to turn on their video because um, one thing I like about these Zoom things is being able to actually see people. And when I say something, I like to see people either sort of nod in a sage way or shake their heads vigorously and jump up and down. Um, I find sort of speaking into, into my uh, video and not seeing anybody. Uh, look, see, some people, are, some people are taking up my invitation. So good morning, everybody. Uh, thank you, Zulon, for that intro. I just want to say a couple of things at the beginning, as Zulon says, about um, some, well, some put forward some basic propositions about partnership and LLP decision-making. And the key point, and I bored a lot of you, I can see from the list on this kind of topic in the past, the key thing is that if you have a power uh, in an LLP agreement or a partnership agreement, do not assume that that power is completely unfettered, even if it looks like it from the words that are used in the agreement. Now, there's no law, still no law really on this topic in an LLP or a partnership context, but there's a whole host of cases on contractual discretionary decision making. Uh, it seems to be the vogue thing for decided cases over the last five or so years. And the key decision, if you're going to look at uh, one, one case on this, is um, Braganza and BP shipping, a fantastic uh, judgment by Lady Hale in the Supreme Court. And really there are two basic points, uh, and that is that a contractual power, which is exercisable by one or more of parties to an agreement, uh, where the exercise of that power can affect other parties to that agreement without that, their consent, so a power exercisable by a, a managing partner or by a committee or by a majority of the partners, where you have that kind of power, the court will usually imply 
an obligation about the way in which that power is uh, exercised. And those fetters on decision-making really fall into two parts, uh, process and outcome. So in terms of process, the court is likely, not necessarily, it all depends on the proper construction of the power, but the court is likely to impose um, implied obligations around taking into account uh, full information and leaving out of account uh, irrelevant matters. And potentially, and we'll come on to this um, in more detail later, potentially to impose by implication a natural justice compliant process. And we'll come on to that in more detail when we look at uh, compulsory retirements. So the court may impose by implication fetters by reference to the process and also in relation to the outcome. So a power can only be properly exercised or only validly exercised if it's exercised in a way that a reasonable decision maker would exercise it. So those of you who do public law or can remember public law from law school days, that picks up on the public law test in the, in the Wensbury case. So Zulon, that's what I wanted to just say by way of introduction, and we'll, we'll go into some of those points in a bit more detail later. Thank you, John. Could you just give us a brief kind of snapshot of what happens if you get any decisions wrong? So for example, you have um, decided to pass a resolution to exit a partner. Um, if that decision hasn't been made um, in compliance with both your contractual and implied duties, what would happen to that decision? Well, here the position is almost certainly different to the position it would be in an employment context. So for those of you in employment law, of course, constructive dismissal is your, is your, um, is your key thing here. So that if somebody is improperly uh, terminated, then leaving aside unfair dismissal, there can be wrongful dismissal and an employee can treat the agreement as, as terminated uh, on a constructive dismissal basis and sue for damages. Um, in a partnership LLP context, the position is probably different because the, the law as it currently stands is that you cannot repudiate an LLP agreement. So there's no equivalent concept to constructive dismissal. And in a case involving an invalid exercise of a power, the position is probably, and again, there's no real law on this at all, um, not just in a in an LLP context, but the law is sort of up in the air in a, in a trust context. The position is probably that if a firm purports to exercise a power to remove somebody either on an expulsion or compulsory retirement basis, and they do not comply with the implied fetters on that power, then the exercise is simply void. So it's simply of no effect. So if you purport to expel somebody and you get it wrong, then they are just still a partner. They are just still a member of the LLP. And so they have a right to assert uh, that continuing status. And tactically, often, uh, people in this situation don't assert a termination and a claim to damages. What they say is, I'm still a member. You must carry on paying me my profit share. And that puts the firm into quite a difficult position because there have been situations, that, and again, I think some of you on the call have probably been involved in some, where firms don't grapple with this. They shut the person out of the building, um, but they are then faced with the prospect that there is a sort of um, an accruing right to, to profit share. And often, the tactic of the individual partner, who understands that in the end they probably can be validly booted out, uh, is quite happy to sit there and assert a right to a continuing. Um, to continuing profit share. So again, the takeaway point here is uh, invalid decisions are probably void, uh, may be voidable, but probably void. And the analysis is not the same as it is in, in an employment context. So it's obviously absolutely critical to get those decisions right. Um, and just to clarify, John, um, the, the implied duties do, that, that apply um, they apply, do they apply the same whether they're delegated to a certain committee or a person or whether the decision goes to a partnership vote well again there it's uh, some authority would be would be helpful um, there is a potentially a distinction between 
um, the, the way in which powers are exercised by, quote, management, so an individual or committee on the one hand, versus a decision by the members as a whole, by majority. And the reason that there may be a distinction in precisely the way in which the law imposes its fetters is that that sort of looks a bit like the distinction between directors' decisions and shareholders' decisions in a, in a company context. But that's, that's quite a nerdy distinction. It, it, in the usual situation, the, the obligations are going to be the same. So you've got to exercise the power in good faith in what you consider to be the best interests of the LLP as a whole. And you've got to comply with the Wensbury process and out, uh, outcome limbs. And it's probably, I mean, my personal view is that in the end, the courts aren't going to draw any real distinction between management decisions and member decisions in an LLP context. But as I say, there's, there's scope for some at least academic, academic debate on that point. Thank you. Um, so moving on to, on to some practical examples of um, decisions that have been made um, or have been made during lockdown. And so there have been lots of reports in the press about um, many law firms, for example, making taking emergency measures um, to protect their business and particularly to conserve cash. So we've seen reports of firms reducing their drawing, partner drawings, um, some firms even reducing fixed profit shares, deferring distributions to partners and deferring even amounts that are due to outgoing or former partners. So, John, in terms of um, making these decisions enforceable, what practical steps do you, firms need to take to ensure that those decisions are lawful in the current context? I think the key point is the one which I would hope would state the obvious, although I'm not sure it's necessarily always obvious to everyone, which is to check what the scope of the power actually is. And on things like changing drawings or changing distribution arrangements or changing fixed shares of fixed share partners, management doesn't always have the power to make those changes. Indeed, um, I'm not sure one could even say that most, most management committees or managing partners do. So the, the key thing is check who's got the power to make the change. And if necessary, pass an amendment, sort of an emergency amendment to the, to the LLP agreement, provided you can do that by a majority vote, pass an amendment to, to vest the powers in the management committee, even if you're going to do that on a sort of short-term basis while the, while the current situation is still in, in play. But that, that, that's the, the, key, the key thing is who's got the power to do it, check whether there's a process that has to be followed. And I think the, the, the second really key point is document, document, document. I think even within law firm management, we're still really bad at documenting decisions of this kind, really bad. Sometimes there will be a minute of, of a meeting uh, and there will be a sort of, a short reference to the issue and and a, and a record of the result but it seems to me you've got to do better than that if you particularly and we'll sarah will come on to some um, whistleblowing and discrimination issues but what you're doing is you're ensuring yourself against disgruntled partners using poor management against the firm later and if you're making a change for example to a distribution policy you've got to record the reasons why you are doing that. And I think there's been a, a reticence over time, certainly when I started doing this kind of work, a reticence that flowed out the traditional approach taken in trust law, where trustees were always said, don't record your reasons. Um, and my personal view is that we should jettison that, certainly in, in, a, in a partnership or LLP context. And it seems to me it's critical that that management does properly record both the information that they take into account and, and reasons. Sarah, so there have been reports also of, of quite a few firms deferring partner promotions, uh, again, as a way of, um, I guess, uh, maintaining uh, profit for equity, part for equity partners. Um, are there any particular pitfalls in doing that and how can firms avoid those? 
Thanks, Zulon. Um, and morning, everybody. I was kind of pleased when John said turn on your video and then I saw that some people are in beautiful locations, for example, beside the lake in Italy. And I felt a little bit, a little bit kind of hard done by sitting here in London, nevertheless. Um, so in terms of um, if you are thinking about doing something deferring promotions, um, or, or this applies to a lot of decisions that are similar to that as well, I would start by saying, why are you doing that? Be very clear before you make those decisions as to what your rationale is. And the reason for that is because it sets the scene for one, how you bring people on board with you and make sure that you don't damage the culture and morale of an organization by making these decisions, which to many will be very unwelcome but also um, helps you to set the framework for in fact how you make those decisions and what factors you take into account, which feeds back to what John's been talking about and, and how you then go on to make the decision and ensure compliance. So step one is kind of, you know, why do you need to do this? Is it financial? Is it because you in fact um, are making people redundant and it sends the wrong message to be promoting partners? Is it because the work has dropped and there's simply not room for that number of equity partners in a particular team? Um, and also think about any other issues you're going to have. For example, you might be promoting people in restructuring and um, deferring all promotions and putting people on furlough in another department which is less busy and just think through the implications. But moving on in terms of potential pitfalls, but the obvious pitfalls, and they've been sort of flagged already, would be around discriminatory treatment and potential whistleblowing. I think discrimination is much more of a kind of active risk when we're talking about things like deferral of promotion. And it's important to think about why you're deferring that particular partner's promotion. You know, are they someone who has not performed particularly well over the last few months or years? And is that connected to a potential protector characteristic, for example, their health or the fact that they might have had a period of parental leave, for example? And the risks there are that you may end up in a situation where you are directly or indirectly discriminating on the grounds of either sex or disability. And also potentially age discrimination, you know, if one of the reasons um, that you are selecting someone for deferral or, or promotion or not promoting at all is because you think, well, actually, if we don't promote them this year, then they won't really have that many years to go as a, at the top of the equity. So why bother promoting them at all? Um, so there's a number of discrimination risks. Um, but I'd also say in terms of, you know, what is your promotion process? Do you have a particular promotion process that you've already set out? And do you have to follow that or do you have to, uh, you know, make a particular decision to allow you to exempt yourself from that process? Have you made particular promises to particular partners around promotion? And also, how do you manage where you actually have made, say, contractual commitments to promote or even commitments which fall short of contractual commitments, but were potentially linked into when you hired somebody? How do you deal with that issue if you are deferring everybody's promotion, but there are certain people whose promotions have to go through to fill a bargain that you made last year or the year before, before any of us saw this coming? Um, so a lot of that is not necessarily around specific legal risks, but it's more around the risk that, you know, if you really jeopardize your relationships with some parts of your firm, you do risk potential team moves and mass exits um, if you have a kind of morale issue and cultural problems that arise out of these sorts of decisions and so i think you know there's a lot of things to think about what i'd say is if you do get to the point where you're satisfied that you can actually go ahead and defer promotions just make sure that if you're not doing it across the board you are selecting people fairly so if you are deferring some and not others make sure that that is based on objective fair criteria and in think beyond just well is it because they are a woman is it because they are uh, disabled is it because they are over 50 and think about whether or not for example one of the reasons might be because they've had childcare responsibilities particularly over the last few months and that you know maybe their billings have dropped and that's why you're thinking about deferring their promotion because in fact that could constitute indirect sex discrimination so you know think about your objective criteria but go one step further and just think about whether there's anything within that criteria that needs to be looked at in more detail to avoid an indirect discrimination claim. Thanks Sarah. And then just touching on one of the nitty gritties of um, issues in lockdown, which we none of us probably ever imagined I'm having to deal with. So how do you hold valid partner meetings when not all the partners can be in the same room and your partnership agreement says that you have to ha have a physical meeting? So, John, what are the kind of issues that you've been seeing in relation to the, this particular problem and how have firms been getting around those? 
But in the end, I mean, people were sort of agonizing hugely when all of this kicked off about uh, meetings. I haven't actually come up, up against or come across a firm which uh, had a situation where they had to hold a meeting and they weren't able to do it. And I suspect now that we are sort of heading towards a more relaxed um, environment, I suspect that if, if physical meetings are required, then they are going to be capable of being held. I think the problem for LLPs is that this is a pure matter of contract. And if on the proper construction of your agreement, you have to hold a physical meeting in order to, be pass, a, to pass a resolution, then that is what you've got to do. And there is simply no way around it. And I looked, and somebody will correct me if I, if I get this wrong, but I had a quick look at the draft legislation that came out last week, which governs the supposed uh, relaxation of the uh, wrongful trading arrangements. And there are in that uh, draft legislation provisions dealing with meetings of companies and other types of body, but it's not, unless I've missed it, there's nothing in there which is extended to uh, LLPs. So the contractual provision pr prevails. And it, as I say, if that requires a physical meeting, then that's what you've got to do. Most of you, I would hope, have got um, modern agreements that at least permit people to join by telephone and video and relatively low quorum requirements where, well, m most of the ones that I think you see drafted now, the quorum includes people attending by telephone or video, so they are treated as being there in person, in which case you may just have to have one or one person in, in a room in the office and then everybody else is there in person by telephone or video. Um, but e e even where the sort of uh, proxy arrangements don't count to, towards the quorum, then most agreements tend to provide for relatively low in-person requirement. But uh, there are obviously agreements out there where that's not the case. Um, and they're just, as I say, Zulon, there's no... Yeah, there's no way around it. If your if your agreement requires a physical meeting with lots of people there, then you can't pass any resolutions uh, unless you, unless you've got that. Of course, there is uh, ultimately one override. As long as everybody is um, putting in the same direction, is that any agreement can be amended in writing uh, unanimously. So if you've got the support of everybody, then you can amend your agreement without holding a meeting and uh, institute new meeting arrangements. Absent that, then there isn't any way around the proper construction of the agreement. Yeah, it kind of day-to-day -day stuff in partner meetings are probably people can be quite relaxed about. But when you're making critical decisions like de-equitizing a partner or actually re removing them, you need to get them that decision absolutely right. And this ad adds an additional um, issue if, if you have to have a physical meeting. Um, so you, you need to get that correct as well as the decision, the actual decision to remove someone. Thank you, John. So just moving on to the next topic in terms of appraisals and remuneration decisions, where obviously uh, a lot of law firms and other professions have 30th April year ends. And so we're now into the season of appraising partners and making remuneration decisions. Um, and a, a lot of most firms that we see will have some element of discretionary profit allocation, whether that's a bonus pool or discretionary points allocation. Um, and that is often quite performance related. Um, so in the current kind of um, environment of social distancing uh, and lockdown, how can firms ensure that they implement a compliant appraisal and decision-making process? I'll throw that question out to Sarah in the first instance, but John, do jump in if you have any, anything to add. Thanks, Elon. And um, what I'd say is that to start with, I'd hope that most firms actually already have a compliant appraisal process, because the difficulty you will have is if you suddenly decide now that you want to make some remuneration decisions that might be unwelcome. If you have not already had a process ongoing for your prior year, at least, then you may find it quite difficult to actually implement those decisions without one resistance and to the potential that someone might try and say that those decisions are unlawful on the grounds of them being discriminatory or on the grounds of whistleblowing and um, so in terms of then what I would have said you should have put in place let's rewind if it was say a year ago or really any time at all 
there's a lot of debate and I think there's been quite a bit of a shift in how we perform as managed partners in, in professional services over the last few years. And I think there has been a move towards um, not having appraisals and uh, to having sort of either ongoing performance management or really a little bit of an absence of performance management. And I think that carries with it some significant risks when we think about it from a legal perspective. Because whilst I can see that there are various different cultural benefits and that, you know, depending on the type of firm you want to be, that might work. Actually, what we've seen in case law and where decisions have been challenged and where people have brought discrimination and whistleblowing complaints is that a properly documented, robust performance management processes that are formal are really, really useful and vital in defending firms against claims. So albeit I can see that there are non-legal benefits to a less formal approach, it's not something that I can hand on heart advocate because I've seen so many firms be saved by having had a formal approach and a documented approach. And what that really looks like varies firm to firm, but I think the first thing is, well, as a firm, what is important to you? So what measures of performance do you want to value? And, you know, different firms have different things. So, you know, some firms will place a huge emphasis on who brings in work. Other firms will place a huge emphasis on, um, you know, utilization of partners. And, and obviously that also varies depending on the level of partner we're talking about. So a lot of firms will have uh, various different kind of categories of equity partners and non-equity partners, and they will be per performance assessed on a different basis. So it can be what you want it to be, but the important thing is to know what's valuable to you and uh, to communicate to the partners what it is that you want them to be achieving and to then assess on that basis. And then the next thing on from that is once you've figured out what you want it to look like and what you want to value and what you want to reward, is about making sure you uh, assess that and record that. So that's about having regular, now whether that's annual appraisals or more frequently than that, or a, a different system, but it's about recording um, those discussions and where people are having performance difficulties, make sure that that is documented somewhere. And the kind of classic situation that we would see, which would cause firms to run into difficulty, is that, for example, somebody uh, goes off on maternity leave and they come back and their performance is not very good and the firm wants to either demote or reduce uh, the remuneration to that person or potentially exit them and they have never prior to maternity leave recorded any problems with their performance and um, I know this is kind of very uh, familiar territory to a lot of the people that are listening and um, so apologies but for, for anyone who's maybe not had to go through this and um, so you know there's no prior performance history there's no prior issues recorded and the, the managing partner is saying to us no but they they were they were doing all these things before they went on maternity leave you know they weren't generating business they weren't very effective they were inefficient their management was poor and we're kind of like well yes but where is the evidence of that and that's just leaving yourselves way open to potential discrimination claim on the grounds that well, you know, when I went on mat leave, there were no performance concerns raised uh, about me. I come back and suddenly there's performance concerns. The only difference is that I went on maternity leave, so therefore it's discrimination. And so, you I know, mean, that's your kind of a very kind of classic story, but it applies to a number of different things. And there's reported cases related to age in this sort of similar area. Um, and it would also similarly apply to a period of absence caused by ill health, which also amounts to a disability. Um, very similar situation there. So really, it's about um, understanding what you want to reward, communicating that to people so that they know what they're striving to achieve, and then making sure you record whenever there are difficulties. And part of that process is also around, you know, let's put the law aside for, for one moment. It's about being able then to, to go through a process where you actually help those people to get better and improve their performance. Because if, in fact, you can make someone achieve all the things that you want them to achieve and help the business grow and develop, then that is in inevitably better than having to deal with either exiting them or difficult discussions around remuneration. So I think that would be sort of the three-step plan. Thanks, Sarah. That's very concise. John, we often see firms that have very little in the way of a process um, when making decisions in their LLP agreement or whether that's in a partner policy or a handbook, there is nothing for the REMCOM or the board or whoever's taking that decision to go by. In that kind of situation, is there any minimum um, process or criteria that the firms should apply to ensure that they're not tripping over some of their implied duties? As you say, Zulon, um, 
it's it's rare to see process uh, documented or required process documented in a remuneration um, situation. Not, I mean, not not unheard of, but but quite rare. I mean, my my view, and again, we'll come back again to this point when we talk about um, compulsory retirement, which I think raises slightly different considerations. But in the context of, for example, remuneration, it seems to me that the implication here would be that the uh, the remuneration committee or whoever it is uh, must implement a process that they regard to be uh, reasonable and uh, their decision will be final on that unless they uh, implement a process which is when which is itself Wensbury un unreasonable so it is for the remuneration committee to decide uh, how they go about ascertaining what is the relevant information and I think some firms will do it on the basis that the remuneration committee will do it on a sort of locked room basis. So they will they will gather their own information and they won't uh, seek representations from partners. Uh, and if that is a process that a remuneration committee decides upon, again, this is in the absence of anything expressly contractual, then I think it is difficult for anybody to say that that is uh, Wensbury un unreasonable, particularly if there is a um, past practice of not seeking individual partner input. Equally, obviously, if they decide that they want a system where un under which uh, people are given the opportunity to make representations about their own performance, then again, that is a matter for them to, to decide uh, subject to the Wednesday reasonableness criteria. So that doesn't help a lot, I know, in practice, but it's, I suppose the punchline is that in the absence of anything expressly contractual, it's the, for the remuneration committee or whoever holds the power to decide uh, what process to follow, and it's not likely to be capable of challenge unless it's Wednesbury unreasonable. We did have a, a prior question from the audience on this um, about how transparent remuneration committees need to be in their decision making. So if a partner was to challenge um, a decision what information should they be providing to that partner uh, as being the basis on which they made that decision? Well, I mean, let's we can sweep, sweep one point out of the way, which is there's no right of, uh, absent something in the contract, there's no right of appeal. If somebody is dissatisfied with the remuneration committee decision, they either like it or they lump it. And if they, if they don't like it and um, they don't want to lump it, then they have to they have to bring a claim for breach of contract. I mean, there's no, uh, there's no, there's no sort of soft way of doing that. I mean, they might, they might try and manoeuvre politically within the firm to, to change something, but ultimately the question is, if they are dissatisfied with what they've been awarded, do they want to bring a claim in court or by arbitration for some sort of remedy? And in that kind of a process, they will, they will get what they're given pursuant to the arbitration rules on discovery or, or, or in court. Well, there's certainly there's, there's no clear law to say that they are entitled as a matter of substantive right to uh, reasons. I mean, there are some, some authorities in different areas which might, might give some support for that kind of, kind of case. But they, there's, there's no sort of, there's no automatic right to, to get more than they are given in terms of, uh, of reasons. What I'd add to that is um, one on the sort of uh, non-legal sense is that often you find that if you give reasons to people, you can actually um, kind of stop something in its tracks. So um, as I sort of referenced earlier, it is quite common for firms to performance manage and not clearly communicate that with, with people. And you, know, you get situations where there is clear documentation about someone's poor performance, but for some reason the, the partner in question is quite unaware of the concerns that the firm have. Now that might be fine because it will ultimately come out in um, disclosure and discovery, as John said, in any process to follow, whether that's in arbitration court or in the employment tribunal, if it's a discrimination issue. But what you don't want is to get that far down the line. So sometimes it's actually strategically the right thing to do is to share that information with someone at a really early stage so that they understand the concerns and are actually dissuaded from challenging or taking action. Um, obviously, firms will have their own reasons as to when they do or don't want to do that. Um, and one of those uh, concerns that firms have are, well, in fact, the people that gave their feedback gave it on the basis that they expected some sort of anonymity with that feedback. And that's a difficult issue for a number of firms who implement those sort of performance management processes. 
because they're then left with the decision of, well, you know, do we then tell people who in the partnership thinks they're rubbish uh, effectively and then ruin those relationships? And potentially that affects a lot of different things, including kind of cross referrals. It makes people hog their work, potentially means that people are disgruntled and might think about leaving. Um, or, or do we um, potentially stave off a claim? So it's quite a difficult balance sometimes. And um, the only other thing I'd say about um, rights to information is in relation to data subject access requests. So uh, I'm probably going to set a few hairs running, but there is a likelihood that if you receive a request for information, whether or not it's called a data subject access request, it may in any event amount to a data subject access request. And you know, the cautious approach from a firm's perspective receiving one of those requests would be to treat it as a data subject access request. And in any event, if the um, partner themselves is advised, they may actually be advised to submit a formal data subject access request. Either way, once you receive a data subject access request, there is nothing you can do to not comply with it. Now, there are some exemptions that apply to the data that you provide, but they are relatively limited. And in most cases, things around performance information and data and feedback received from other people will come within the data that you have to provide to that partner in compliance with your um, subject access obligations. So the right of subject access is a fundamental right. So it's something that's very difficult to get out of. And so is that one thing though, in terms of the anonymity point, you can and you should redact third party data when you provide it to the data subject who's making the request. So the partner making the request doesn't get a list of all the names of the people that made the comments, but they are entitled to the data. And so just think about that. And then the other thing is in relation to kind of how you manage the other piece. So, um, you know, asking for consent of the other people of the third parties whose data you're about to provide is also part of that puzzle and you may want to in fact ask them to consent to give the data with their names on it and you may in any event even if you're providing it on an anonymous basis want to tell some people that information has gone out so it's just an important point to bear in mind if you get a request think about whether it is in fact a data subject access request and whether therefore the statutory regime is triggered. I guess the lesson from that is that there's a tricky tightrope to be walking. On, on the one hand, you need to document any appraisal process and decision-making process carefully, but it also needs to be slightly curated so you're not putting down anything that might um, look great. If a data subject access was request was to be made or disclosure in litigation had to be made. So being very mindful of those issues right from the outset is, is critical. And, and assume that everything will come out is, is a really sensible way to proceed because it, it helps people not, but even not formal documents like appraisals, but emails between partners discussing people's performance, that will all come out. So, you know, if you wouldn't be prepared to say it in court, don't be prepared to put it on an email that might end up disclosable. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, a, there's quite a key distinction between a, uh, appraisal processes and remuneration decisions and I know the two things are obviously linked but on appraisals I completely agree with Sarah that you've got to document the true outcome of the appraisal uh, I mean how many uh, uh, of us litigators how many cases do we get um, certainly as barristers we all get um, from the firm there's a dispute about a, rem a removal of somebody and somebody will prepare a nice um, instructions to counsel which document how terrible this person's been over the years, both in terms of performance and behavior. And then you say, and you get a few documents and then you go back to the solicitors and say, do you have an appraisal process? Oh yes, can I see the appraisals? And it's like, well, you can, um, but do you really want to see those? It's like, yes, and you see them and of course, as Sarah says, they are that they bear no relationship to the instructions you've got. So you've got you've got to document properly um, uh, appraisals. Remuneration is is trickier, I think, from a practical point of view. Certainly in larger firms, because you've got to really decide in advance, haven't you, about what about the extent to which you are going to record reasons for any for particular remuneration decisions. And if you're going to record short reasons for 150 decisions, then just then do that and be prepared to disclose it to whoever wants to see it. Where I think you end up being drawn into difficulties is if you don't document the actual decisions of all 150, but you then get drawn into on a sort of individual case basis, providing some reasons to some partners. 
and that I, th I that I think it, it can can lead to to difficulties. My point here was just that not necessarily the same considerations apply to appraisal process and remuneration decisions. Before we move on from performance management type issues, I think there's just another point to flag, which is that at the moment we are all in a sort of unusual position in that we're all working remotely. And that does bring about certain considerations for ongoing performance management. So we're sort of thinking about, you know, what we're looking backwards, thinking, well, how do we performance manage or, or how do we do an appraisal for someone now? And then how do we do a remuneration decision for them now? But actually going forward, we will come across this again in a year's time or, you know, um, a number of months time depending on your own scheduling and it's important to then have in mind over the next few months how you're going to properly manage the performance of people who are remote and whether or not you in fact need to change your uh, appraisal process or your criteria for performance based on the new way of working um, and you know there are sort of a number of things whether or not you want to introduce different criteria that relate to how partners are engaging with their team and um, how they are managing the remote working situation but there are also things about how you actually perform as manage someone who is underperforming is it because they in fact don't have the supervision you know if they're a junior partner is that one of the reasons and also think about business development considerations you know do you need to adapt your focus on that if that's a huge part of your uh, performance criteria and do you need to look at you know how people are doing that in a different environment so i just think going forward you might want to be actually thinking about different criteria for the year ahead and if you are doing that then again back to what i said a while ago then think about how you communicate that to people because they need to know what they're striving to achieve ahead of when you're going to appraise them on the basis of having achieved it or not thanks sarah that's a great point and i'm sure lots of firms are thinking about those issues right now so moving on to the next topic around partner exits, and I know we've touched on it prior to this, so we'll probably keep this one quite brief. John, if you could kind of start us off with, um, again, practical steps that firms should be taking to ensure any decision to exit a partner um, and any process involved is, again, in accordance with duties, whether under contractually or, or implied. Um, so that it is in fact enforceable. Yeah. Well, on this, I've, I mean, over probably going back now 10 years, given a, a clear steer to firms and that e even where what you are concerned with is a so-called no-fault um, expulsion or compulsory retirement provision, you've got to treat that as being subject to an implied obligation to follow a natural justice compliant process. And in a sense, it doesn't matter whether you get to that result because that's uh, the, what, what um, commercial law will impose on you. You need an insurance policy against um, discrimination or whistleblowing claims. So you have got to, you've got to follow a process. I think law firms are actually much better at this than they were maybe a few years ago. The financial services industry is still absolutely terrible. I mean, absolutely terrible. So we still see retirement decisions in hedge fund LLPs just made by a committee without any investigation and just at the drop of a hat. It's not difficult. I mean, it, it's not difficult. It seems to me that there are really four basic steps. The first is that if you are thinking about removing somebody, and it doesn't matter for this purpose whether it's a no-fault provision or, or a, an expul a expulsion for cause provision, the first step is you have to tell the person that you are considering exercising the power and you have to tell them why you are considering doing so. I mean, natural justice. So, I mean, call it a charge sheet if you want, but I mean, you've got to, you've got to set down in writing why you are thinking of exercising uh, the power. So that's stage one. Stage two is you've got to give them an opportunity to respond. You've got to give them a reasonable opportunity to respond, certainly in, in writing. And it seems to me at least, and again, all of this is obviously subject to the express provisions in your agreement. Um, I think you should give them an opportunity to respond in writing and you should also give them an opportunity if they wish to take it up to address the relevant decision maker uh, orally. So that, that's stage two. Stage three is you've actually got the decision maker or decision makers is that have actually got to, to sit down 
uh, maybe by video, uh, and consider whether to exercise the power in the light of the information that is available at the time they are actually making the decision. And that is going to be the, the, the charge sheet and, and supporting documents, and it's going to be whatever representations the relevant person has made uh, in response, and perhaps other information which has been um, gathered in the meantime. So that's stage three. And stage four is you want to record the outcome and the reasons. And in relation to this kind of power, it seems to me that you, you've got to record the reasons. And again, it, in a sense, it doesn't matter whether you have to do that because um, substantive civil law is now telling you that's an obligation implied into these kind of powers, or because you need it as part of your insurance against a um, discrimination or, or whistleblowing claim. And you've got to follow those four steps. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the process has got to take months and months. Uh, I tend to think all other things being equal that provided you are giving the person uh, the full information in the charge sheet, then there's no reason why they shouldn't be able to respond in a, a week or two. And so there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to implement this kind of decision relatively quickly. But you've got to follow the process. And, and if you don't, you risk, you risk um, employment tribunal type claims and you risk the contention that your decision is substantively invalid because you haven't followed a process compliant with your implied obligations. Thanks, John. I mean, in terms of um, where there's been an allegation of wrongdoing, obviously there can be a clear reason that the firm can put forward as, as being the one for exercising an expulsion provision, for example. But where you have a no-fault inverted commas provision, um, retirement provision in your agreement, are you still under the same obligation to provide a specific reason for that exit? Well, uh, my view is that you are, at least in the sense that if you don't, then you are exposed to the risk that somebody will say that you are not exercising the power in good faith and you are not exercising it uh, rationally or reasonably in a, in a Wensbury sense. Because mm -hmm. it's certainly irrational to expel somebody literally for no reason, whether you've got an expulsion clause or not. I mean, that is just irrational. They are part of your business. They are part of the joint venture, which is a, joint, a partnership and an LLP. To, to expel somebody for no reason is irrational or outside the reasonable range for Wensbury purposes. So you have to have the reason. The traditional reticence, again, springing from, the, from, from trust law, is that um, you shouldn't be required to explain your reason. But it seems to me, as I say, you run the risk that if you don't articulate your reason, then you are going to be accused of being irrational or Wensbury unreasonable. And much better, I think, that you come out and record the reasons at the time rather than uh, wait until there is a challenge and then produce a document, whether it's a defence to an arbitration or, or whatever. Producing a document later recording the reasons that seems to me to be a, a tactical mistake. And again, you've got to have a reason. You won't be doing it if you haven't got a reason. And if you've got reasons, then it doesn't seem to me there's any problem in ultimately in, in recording those at the time. Thanks, Sean. Sarah, so we obviously see a lot of partner assets, whether advising the firms or individuals, um, and those can result in uh, quite significant disputes. What do you think are the most common challenges to an exit decision um, that a firm makes and how do you, how can firms mitigate against those risks of challenge? So uh, adding, I suppose it's adding on to what John said, so one of the most common challenges that we would see would be on the grounds that there has not been a fair process, a process that didn't comply with um, fairness requirements, didn't comply with natural justice, um, was uh, commenced for no or improper reasons. Um, but uh, alongside that, we see a lot of challenges on the grounds of, I would say, probably more discrimination than whistleblowing, albeit we do see whistleblowing challenges as well. Um, I think whistleblowing is very specific. So, you know, that is where someone has made a protected disclosure about something, so wrongdoing, and then has been targeted for exit as a result. And I think um, particularly in uh, professional services, we don't see that as frequently. I mean, it happens. Uh, we see it a bit more in the financial services uh, sector. So we'll see it more in um, hedge funds and private equity businesses where 
often it's the person charged with uh, it, you know, ensuring risk compliance that will make uh, raise a concern and put their head above the parapet and then potentially be targeted as a result. So, you know, if you are exiting someone because they have made a complaint about something or raised a concern that maybe you're not doing things in compliant with FCA regulations or with the SRA regulations or with uh, general law or, or other legal duties, then that is a cause for concern and may land you in a whistleblowing issue. Um, but the other, and I think more common issue is discrimination. And the common discrimination issues that we will see are perhaps a bit more subtle than people might immediately think. So often it's around um, not, I was selected because I am a woman or I was selected because I was off sick, but, but it's more, I was selected uh, to leave because in fact my performance was in the bottom 10% of the firm. But in fact, the reason my performance was in the bottom 10% of the firm is actually because I was off sick and then even when I came back I wasn't properly supported or the reason my performance is like that is because actually I, I just came back from maternity leave six months ago and in fact there was no support from the firm in order to help me build back up my practice which I effectively passed on to someone else for the nine months for example that I, that I was away from the, the business so those are really really common issues that we see and um, the other uh, common discrimination issue that we will see in um, professional services firms in particular is age discrimination. So it's really common that uh, firms justifiably want a succession plan because they are worried, in fact, a lot of the time that partners will suddenly just, you know, up and leave when they get to a particular age. Um, and firms don't want those partners and the uh, contacts and connections that they have to just walk out the door without any planning going going on and um, so that's a, a common thing for firms to want to do and it can be done lawfully but the problem is a lot of firms might not think it through might not do it in a lawful way and that results in potential claims so I think they would be the two main factors and um, before I stop talking I wanted to actually just put a question back to John based on what he was saying which is around what we sometimes see is that people go through all the things you've said so they get an opportunity to respond the people then consider all the information but they actually do it in an appeal process, not in the original decision-making process. And I just wondered what your view is as to whether or not that saves them from an unfair decision or whether in fact it's too late by that point. When you say appeal process, I mean, is this where the LLP agreement provides for an appeal process? Yeah, so let's say someone is told you're leaving, here's notice, you know, your last day's tomorrow. And then the person says, no, actually I want to appeal because you know, why have you made these decisions? You never gave me a chance to, to contribute to your decision making. So they might have gone off and looked at relevant factors and done a proper process, but they have, you know, the bit they've missed out is any participation by the individual. And then the individual gets to go through and participate in an appeal process. And I suppose the question then is, well, does that mean that in fact, before the final decision was reached, there was an opportunity for them to respond. Therefore, all those kind of boxes have been ticked. Or is it a case of, well, actually, that decision was prejudged and the appeal wasn't therefore not really part of the original discussion? Well, if, if, it's, a, if it's effectively an informal appeal process, so somebody is just raising a complaint and then the firm sort of responds to that, then that's not itself part of the contractual process. But it seems to me that actually, if the firm or, or rather the whoever is the decision maker makes a further decision at the end of the, the appeal process, then that may just be treated as a decision for the purposes of the removal power. And if that decision is compliant, then so be it. I mean, I, I think that the whole sort of prejudging point can be overdone here because uh, it, it, the power doesn't go away. This is not a this is not a situation where the contractual power is exercisable once and once only. And if you get it wrong, you've lost your chance. This is a power which sits there forever while the LLP is ongoing. So, even absent your appeal example, Sarah, if the firm purports to expel somebody or remove them, uh, and they the person challenges and maybe they start an arbitration if the decision maker just has another go and does it properly then the the removal will be valid at that later stage now sometimes that's valuable from a partner's point of view i mean if if you can if you can make the firm have a second bite of the cherry and there's let's say a two or three month gap between the first decision and the 
uh, and the effective decision, then that might get you two or three months worth of profit share because your removal was invalid in the meantime. Uh, and that may be valuable in its own right, but um, getting it wrong once doesn't stop the firm from, from getting it right a second time. So I think in answer to your question, you follow a sort of de facto appeal process and get it right, then that will be a, that will be a valid removal. Thanks. Um, just to cover the, the final topic around strategic um, decisions and any changes to your LLP agreements. Um, so specifically looking at, um, obviously, in this kind of current climate, there'll be many fair, people will be dusting off their partnership agreements and realizing there are lots of things and lot, um, not, not quite helpful or there are gaps um, that again are not helpful. Um, so John, could you just um, give us a quick kind of a, a bullet point summary of what firms should consider when amending their LLP agreement um, and uh, how they can do that lawfully? Yes, well, I mean, the, the, the first point, of course, is do, do you have a power to amend your agreement uh, by majority or, or not? If you don't, then you can't amend your agreement unless everybody signs up. And if everybody's got to sign up, then in a sense, process and meetings doesn't really matter because if everyone agrees, you can just have a new written document. So that's fine. If you want to do it by a majority vote, then you've got to follow the process. And if the process requires a meeting, then we get back into the points we were discussing earlier about the extent to which there needs to be physical presence. I mean, I wouldn't have thought from a practical point of view, this is the time to do a sort of root and branch uh, review of agreements as a whole. I would have thought the focus just has to be on key things now, and those have got to be around financial management, I would suspect, for most firms. So again, it goes back to the points we were making earlier. Does your management have sufficient powers to be able to deal with cash flow and drawings and distributions? And if it doesn't, then get those amendments passed at an early stage. Don't end up in a situation where management just takes de facto decisions uh, without, without proper authority. If you need to amend your agreement, uh, do it. But beyond that, I would have thought, save, save up a general review until we get back to normal. Agreed. Um, and then moving on to the more strategic decisions around mergers and for those unfortunate firms that find themselves in financial difficulties in terms of um, appointing insolvency practitioners or agreeing a pre-packed sale. If, again, from both of you, if we could have a brief kind of summary of the issues that firms should consider and prepare for in, in those kind of situations. On merger, I think one of the, one of the the planning steps again has to be look to look at what you've actually got in your in your LLP agreement. Do do you have express powers dealing with uh, or permitting mergers or sales and the process around that and the consequences around that? And if you don't, then part of your early stage planning has to be to use your majority powers to amend the agreement, assuming you've got them to set up enabling provisions within your agreement dealing with um, or permitting merger and uh, sale. And in the time available, it seems to me the two absolutely key things here to think about are what happens to the proceeds of sale of, the, of a merger or a sale. Uh, if you're going to treat it as a capital proceed, how is, how is that going to be shared amongst your partners and are fixed share partners going to, to get a share in that? Um, and again, don't rule out the possibility you can use your amendment powers to adjust, adjust how that is dealt with, even in the context of an actual con contemplated transaction. And the second point is what, what happens to the, to the people, what happens to the partners uh, on the merger? Are, are they required to join the, the new business uh, or not? And if they effectively have an opt-out, um, you need to think carefully about in about ensuring that the contractual arrangements for them are in place. What you don't want is a, a merger to happen where somebody is left behind, that is, they don't join the new entity, but they are not treated as a retired partner for the purposes of your agreement, because you get into financial issues about their entitlement and you get into issues about not triggering restrictive covenants and the benefit of those not being assigned. So again, we haven't got very long, but the, the key point here is that if you are 
if you are allowing for people not to join the new entity, you need to have a provision which treats them as a retired partner uh, the day before or immediately before the effective date of your merger so that they are treated as, uh, as an outgoing partner before the merger is effective. And that means they then get their financial entitlements as a retired partner and they will be subject to restrictive covenants if you've got them. And at least in usual cases, the benefit of those restrictive covenants can be assigned to, to the new business. You don't want them to sort of hang around uh, within the old LLP and not contractually treated as a retired partner. Thank you, John. And Sarah, any kind of input from your side in terms of um, other people issues? And again, um, anything else you might like to add? Um, all I'd add is, uh, I suppose, to echo issues around restricted covenants um, and to think about things like team moves and whether you want to actually take any steps to seek to introduce additional provisions which prevent people from going and leaving en masse and taking connections in staff. Um, and the other thing to think about is, you know, do you need to put in place anything which prevents successive partner departures? You know, if, if partners view the firm of having not handled this whole situation well that may encourage them to leave and that may uh, one have a run on the work but also run on the capital so just think around things like that um, but just I'd say on sort of team moves and uh, restricted covenants it's a whole topic in itself and it's one that we will be covering in the next uh, few weeks so um, I'd sort of invite you all back to hear that session where we're going to a lot more detail. Fantastic. And if you get really bored in the in the process of um think about the merger and you're feeling nerdy, then you can have a think about um, whether Tupi applies uh, to uh, an LLP. You can ask John about that, because you know. <laughs> um, and you can, have an, you can have an argument with me about whether it applies or it doesn't apply. Uh, and if it doesn't apply, how the hell on earth it, it, it actually operates in practice. Excellent, thank you both. That's the, whole, that's the third talk, that's the Tupi special. <laughs> well, uh, we only have one question just to round off uh, again quite a general point around initially we saw a few years ago uh, a push to import employment law concepts into llp and partnership law this seems to have firmly receded is that the panelists view in terms of employment rights and does that also apply to partners who who maybe are not involved in any management decisions at all do you think employment concepts are still going to be applied in the future so it's quite of a, a left field question. <laughs> I think it depends what we think about as employment concepts. So as a, a partnership and employment lawyer, I, I don't think about that divide quite so clearly. So I think unfair dismissal is clearly in the employment category, uh, as is constructive dismissal, as, as discussed. But actually, there are some rights which are very clearly applicable to workers and LLP members being workers. They're very clearly applicable to LLP members. So discrimination, whistleblowing, uh, unlawful deduction of wages, which people forget about, which essentially means that, you know, if you do stop paying a partner their profit because you think you've expelled them, then actually, if you haven't and they're still a partner, they're actually still accruing not just their right to profit, but their statutory right to, to have those wages paid unless you've got an agreement otherwise. Um, so a lot of things still apply to partners or uh, do apply to LLP members that I would say are now partnership and employment rights that, uh, that everyone who is in charge of an LLP needs to think about. Um, so I think there are still those employment concepts which are well now embedded within the partnership field. I agree with that. I, th I suspect what the questioner sort of, sort of had in mind is the feeling a few years ago that the world was just going to stop turning the partnership and LLP world was going to stop turning because we were sort of infected by the virus of employment law. And actually, um, as Sarah says, the, the underlying principles are sort of, they are there, but they're not really causing, they're not causing practical headaches. So unlawful deduction, it comes up occasionally, but it's not, it doesn't, uh, it's not a major point. The pension point seems to have been, everyone seems to have dealt with that. Uh, rights to be accompanied isn't that one of the worker rights uh, yeah, things again you know we all sort of nerdily talked about it but in practice it hasn't really caused a problem mm. where if again if you call them employment um, concepts come in it, it's the whistleblowing and discrimination claims and they are here to stay both in, uh, LL, in an LLP context um, uh, and leads to discrimination in the partnership 
context. So the two worlds have sort of come come together, but the partnership and LLP world is still turning, I think. Thank you. And then just one very quick final question. Um, do you think that damages has any place in wrongful termination? What about the Canadian approach in Tim Ludwig? <laughs> Who's someone? Who's, is, that, is that Jess? Jeremy, isn't it? Is that, Someone's been reading it sounds like an exam question. Yeah, but is, we, this was part of the debate that we were having in advance of this. So, um, it was. It was. Um, well, can partners and LLP members uh, sue for damages? Yes, they can. Um, the, the trickier point is what happens if you purport, for example, to expel somebody and the decision is invalid? Does, does a, an individual have the right just to treat that? as effective to terminate their um to terminate their membership and then but not ratify the breach so you can you are you entitled to treat yourself as terminated and then just sue for damages for example for loss of future earnings and that's that's the tricky point i mean certainly if you take if you take the it's void approach then the answer to that is no, you are, if it's void, it's just, you are not expelled. And you can sue for damages if you can sue, if you can show a loss that flows from a breach that's not connected to your membership. But if what you're trying to do is to sue for loss of future earnings, then if you are actually still a member, then you haven't suffered a loss. I mean, I think there are two two routes, and this is an entire topic or article or or whatever in its own right. I think there are two two conceptual ways around this. One is for the law in the end to say that a decision is voidable, not void, and then it's for the individual who's affected to decide whether to uh, treat it as void um, and to go for risk for rescission, uh, in which case they're still a member if the decision is invalid or not to just to allow the decision to stand and to sue for damages so voidability is one route but conceptually that is very tricky in the light of the way the law is in, in other areas another possible approach for which i'd started thinking about sarah when we were debating this by email the other day is whether an individual can say that they are entitled to ratify in effect ratify the the invalid decision again but ratification in the sense of the decision takes effect so you you are your membership is terminated but you don't ratify by that a uh, the, the breach that underlies it so that you can treat yourself as terminated and then sue sue for damages and i think those are conceptually the two ways that you can probably do it and i think in the end the courts will want to find one or other or perhaps some other route to enable a member to do it even though repudiation doesn't apply to llps because just from a practical point of view it just makes more sense to enable somebody if they want to pursue a claim to be able to choose whether to assert a right to continue as a member or instead to to, to sue for damages there's a, there's a seminar or a lecture in yeah. on that in its own right so we have an expert opinion there i think we can all probably assume that's all um, settled. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, we're going to wrap up now that we had two very fantastic panellists and some interesting things to discuss. So thank you to both John and Sarah for your fantastic contributions. And thank you also to all of our audience for zooming in and joining us this morning. We hope that you found it useful. Um, and we hope to see you soon at our next Zoom now.